And hello, everyone. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, the do-it-yourself marine biologist, Asha DeVos. I mean, my best friends are duct tape, bungee cords. <laughs> you know, that's the stuff that I use. Asha grew up in Sri Lanka, where marine biologists were few and far between, and female ones were even scarcer. So she's pretty much had to make things up as she's gone along. And that includes her very self-sufficient approach to research. She's often had to make do without fancy equipment or much money or help, which is where the duct tape and bungee cords come in handy. The lack of resources, though, has not stopped her from making some really interesting discoveries, especially about a unique tribe of blue whales who live in the waters around Sri Lanka. Asha calls them unorthodox whales because they do things their own way, Little has been known about them uh, until Asha started studying them, but uh, she is learning more all the time, and she's going to share some of what she's learned with us today. One of the things that, that she's been involved with, by the way, is protecting these whales from various threats, including ships that have uh, the nasty habit of running over them. That's what brought her out here to the California coast. She's doing postdoctoral research at UC Santa Cruz, looking at ways of getting ships to steer clear of blue whales. But more on that later. First, I wanted to hear about Asha's own unorthodox career and how she became a marine scientist to begin with. So I think there was a subconscious decision at like a very young age. Um, I actually drew my first poster that said, Save Our Sea Mammals at the age of six. It seems kind of ridiculous, but I think there was some inherent appreciation for this like thing that I didn't understand and was so huge. And, you know, I would see the ocean every day when I was going to school. It mm. wasn't like I was far enough away from it to forget about it. Mm. Um, and so I think it kind of snowballed into I'm really interested in actually studying to be a marine biologist. And I think at about 16, I was like, I think that's kind of a neat field. I really am interested in animals and behavior. And I'm interested in, you know, you know, the ocean and I and water. I have a huge affinity for water. So it just seemed like this great little mix. And also just the fact that the ocean, I mean, we don't know anything about it, really. So that sort of intrigue. And so then I started really setting my sights on becoming a marine biologist. Did you have any uh, marine biologist role models? Um, actually, you know, living in Sri Lanka, there's not a lot of marine biologists, like pretty much a handful. They're not all very active. Um, so I can't say I had any marine biology um, role models. But what I did have, I think, is I used to go to this swing club near my house. And Arthur C. Clarke, the you know famed science fiction writer, he actually used to come to that uh, swing club. And he... He lived in Sri Lanka. Absolutely. Yeah. He moved to Sri Lanka because of all the diving that it had and all these wrecks. And um, so, you know, he used to talk of these stories of exploration, the things they used to find in the diving expeditions. And for me, I think that triggered some kind of interest and sort of a, 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 like intrigue for this vast blue space. So, I mean... Different kinds of role models have definitely influenced my life. I did a little background reading on you, found some articles in the Sri Lankan press about you. Mm -hmm. It said you went to ladies' college. Mm -hmm. That's, what, secondary school? No. So in Sri Lanka, we actually go to the same school from the age of four till you're 18. Like the school becomes really a big part of you because, it's, you know, you've grown up in that school with the same people. Did they have any options at ladies' college for a would-be marine biologist like you? No, actually, they don't. I mean, I do try to go and speak to the schools and not just my old school. I, when I go home, I speak to schools in rural areas. I speak to any age group from three up. Um, but the kind of curriculum that we have in Sri Lanka is unfortunately quite strict. It's very, you know, based on eight subjects that you have to pass for these big exam, national exams that we do. Um, so there's not a lot of room for that. But, um, you know, I'm hoping that someday we'll be able to infuse a little bit of that into the schools in general in the country. Well, by the time you did go off to college um, at uh, the University of St. Andrews mm -hmm. in Scotland, yep. you chose that because of marine biology, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to get, go to St. Andrews. That was my top choice because they are one of the biggest and best marine mammal schools in the world. And I just felt like if I could go there, I, I could learn you know, stuff. And that could help me to go back to Sri Lanka and build this field um, in a country which I think has so much potential, but so little is done. But uh, Scotland, the North Sea, 
<laughs> long way mm-hmm. from Sri Lanka and very different. What yep. was that contrast like for you? It was really interesting uh, because uh, while there are, you know, numbers of Sri Lankan students who go to British universities because we have such a British-based system, our schools are very British-based. Um, I chose to go to St. Andrews because obviously because of the subject, but it was also like there weren't any other Sri Lankans there. So I didn't have the comfort of being like, oh, these are like the people who understand me. Um, I had a brother in Glasgow, which was two and a half hours away, which was great because it was we were close enough but far enough. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was it was an incredible experience. Uh, people were so warm and welcoming. I have an adopted family there, you know. Um, and I think for me, I guess I've been traveling from the time I was about three years old. And so for me, that whole culture shock element wasn't a big deal. I didn't feel like I was being thrown in the deep end. Yeah, I was on my own for the first time, and that can be a little daunting because I was 18 and just out of school, and, you know, it it was very different. But I kind of revel in new experiences, so I think that's that was perfect for me. You said you had traveled a lot. Your father was a, a well-known architect and particularly um, active in the area of preservation of mm-hmm. historical monuments. So did that take you beyond Sri Lanka? Yeah, so my dad, he actually, he's done some restoration projects in other parts of the world, but we didn't necessarily travel with him on work outside the country as much, uh, apart from when he was getting awards in, say, India or something, and that gave us chances to travel. Uh, And he's built hotels in the Maldives, so we got to go there, Ah, which isn't a bad thing. Um, But a lot of it was Sri Lanka-based, which, you know, I'm actually really grateful that he was such an adventurer in Sri Lanka and doing such... You know, restoring buildings that are thousands of years old, monastery complexes, um, because it gave me a real appreciation for the history and culture of the country. And I think it's very strongly ingrained in who I am. And I'm extremely proud to be Sri Lankan as a result. Um, So I think, you know, just being able to explore my own little island and there's still so much more to see is um, just such an incredible experience. What years were you at uh, St. Andrews? I was there from 1998 to 2002. And then you went on to Oxford. That's right. So I actually took a year off in between because I think I was a little bit tired of uh, just learning theory. And I was like, okay, I want to go out and I want to do some practical stuff. So get my hands dirty. And so I basically spent six months in a tent in New Zealand shuttling from project to project, working with Hector's dolphins, working with like, inland water bodies and we had to measure eels and slimy creatures like that which was interesting um i worked in a marine lab in auckland you know so i got a little bit of a taste of different things and then i heard of this research vessel uh, belonged to roger payne who's you know really famous um marine mammalogist because he actually discovered that a humpback whale sing and so you know this vessel was going around the world and it was going to be around the Maldives and Sri Lanka and I was like okay I need to try to get on this because those opportunities are so rare in my part of the world and so I basically wrote to the CEO of the company that ran the boat for maybe four months every single day until they let me on (laughs) I think they were so tired of me at the end they were like yep okay just get on the boat so that's what I did and yeah then I got six months Uh, where I became, you know, like I got to work on a whale research vessel doing really interesting stuff. And that was a great opportunity. And that's actually where my own personal appreciation for the blue whales in Sri Lanka began. Tell me about these letters that you wrote every single day. Yeah, you know, they were just letters saying how much I really wanted to be a marine biologist. I want to go down the path of working with marine mammals. And I would, you know, basically beg and plead because I was like, I don't get these opportunities and just let me get on for a week, two weeks. And if I'm good enough, you can keep me for however long. But, you know, I was giving them the freedom to chuck me out. But um, I've actually, my dad um, happened to meet the CEO of this company once many years later. And he says, you know, the only reason we let her on board was because she was so persistent. Wow. So there well, you go. Well, there's a lesson there, huh? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> so this was um, about 2003? Yeah, that's right. 2003, 2004, around that time. Yeah. 2004, a lot of people will remember, was the year of the... Indian Ocean tsunami, mm-hmm. which hit Sri Lanka pretty hard. Yeah. Where were you then? 
I was luckily, obviously for my good fortune, I was in my house in Colombo, but in that Sri morning in Sri Lanka, but that morning I was actually supposed to be diving off the southern coast and it just so happened that my dad was going to drive me down. It's a two-hour drive from home and I was just going to go in. I would have been getting into the water around the time of the first wave and it just so happened we had these friends who came from England and they were like, oh, you know, it's the day after Christmas. Uh, you know, why don't we have lunch together? And I was frothing mad. I was so excited about going for this dive and that's all I really could think about. And then the news started trickling in and I was like, wow, like, you know, this is crazy. And and it's what's so interesting is that Sri Lanka had never really heard of the word tsunami before that day. Hmm. There were so many people who had no idea. They were just like, oh, it's a big wave. Wow. So uh, if not for the intervention of fate, you mm-hmm. might have been in the danger zone for sure. Yeah. I don't and know what it would have been like to be diving during a tsunami. Yeah. So I think... Uh, if I was offshore, it's not such a big problem. Right. But I, it was just the fact that I was going to be loading the boats and sure. getting on the boats at the yeah. time. And that's, you know, the first wave came in. And then, you know, subsequent waves came in. And, you know, that's how a lot of people lost lives. Just And there's so many stories like that of people who got away lucky. Mm. And, of course, there are all the sad stories as well. What did it do to your life at that time? You know... That's the first time I actually started thinking about oceanography, right? The physical side of the marine environment, because I'd spent so much time thinking about the biological, the ecological stuff, the an- animals that live there. But I never really stopped to think, okay, but there's a bigger physical force that's driving a lot of this. And I think that was one of those moments where I was like, you know what, there's, there's real value in me, like exploring this other, it's a totally different field almost, but starting to explore that and I actually did my PhD in oceanography because I was interested in looking at the physical environment, how that influences I the didn't ecology. know that. I didn't know that. So you went to the University of Western Australia yep. in Perth. Mm-hmm. And even though you are known as a marine biologist, you went the oceanography direction, mm-hmm. which, as you say, is about the physical ocean. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's, it was very, like, a huge steep learning curve for me. For me, bio- biological things come so intuitively. Um, and then here I was sitting in a lab full of, like, people with strong physics backgrounds, writing equations on the whiteboard. My contribution would be a picture of a whale because that's as far <laughs> as I could go. What but, did you do your dissertation on? Um, I actually looked at the factors that influence the blue whales, the physical factors influencing blue whales in Sri Lankan waters. I thought to myself, if I care about the behavior of these animals and why they're doing what they're doing, they're doing it because the environment is impinging on them. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to know what was it about the physical side of the environment that was impinging on them and driving these different things that influenced the whales. And so, yeah, that was my path. So you were still a marine biologist and an oceanographer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so by this time, you mentioned that it was while aboard this research vessel, 2003, 2004, that you got really interested in whales specifically. Was there a moment? Was there... Yes. <laughs> yeah. My first sighting of a blue whale ever in my life. I actually worked on this research vessel in the Maldives. And then we sailed from the Maldives to Sri Lanka. And it was so interesting because I was on watch as we crossed the imaginary exclusive economic zone line from the Maldives to Sri Lanka. And I literally crossed it. And then this big, you know, spout, vertical spout right in front of me. And I was like, it's a blue whale. You know, I was like, wow, that's the first one I've ever seen. And it's in Sri Lankan waters. This is crazy. And I was super blown away by that. And, you know, I was obviously really excited. And I was thrilled that I was the one who saw it. And I was like, it's in my waters. And, you know, mm-hmm. all of that excitement. But then the the reason my project sort of blossomed into what it is today is because while we were on this cruise, there was a day we were on the southeast coast of the island just, you know, doing observation work. I was on deck looking out. The boat was really focused on looking out for sperm whales. But of course, if there was anything interesting, we could divert. So I was looking out the horizon and then I saw this, you know, tall vertical blow. And I was like, you know, it wasn't lopsided like the sperm whales blows. And I was like, well, you know, it can only really be a blue whale because it was really, really tall and it was in the distance. And so, you know, I was super excited. I called down to the captain and I was like, oh, I think we have a blue whale, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, st- I was staring at it because I was like, I don't want it to go away. I must focus. And then I was like, there is more than one. And then I was like, as we got closer, I realized it was six. 
And there were six blue whales in an area maybe the size of a soccer pitch, which really is a small area if you're a big animal like that. It doesn't make sense because... Well, they can get as long as a soccer pitch, can't well, they? Well, exactly. They're so big, right? <laughs> so for me, it was one of those things where I was like, what are they doing? Why are they all hanging out in this tiny area? It didn't make any sense. And, you know, the textbook sort of answer to what blue whales do is that they forage and feed in polar waters um, and they do these long migrations to mid and low latitudes where they breed and they calve. So it's like, oh, maybe this is them, you know, maybe they're breeding. This is exciting. I might see some blue whale hanky-panky kind of, you know, I was kind of psyched for that. But then, of course, as if they heard what I was thinking, one of them pooped. <laughs> and then I was like, wait a second. You know, I mean, it's funny. Not everybody has a defining moment when an animal poops, but apparently that's where mine came. And um, I realized that, uh, number one, the whales were feeding in those waters, which we weren't expecting because they should be feeding in, you know, polar waters. That's what I thought the textbooks had told me. But this is tropical waters, five degrees above the equator, and they're feeding in that water. And the fact that it was bright red and incredibly beautiful color um, means that they were feeding on krill. So... For me, I was like, wait a second. This is exciting. I need to understand what's going on. How are they feeding? What are they feeding on? What are they doing here? And all these questions started just pouring out. Are you saying really that people didn't know that blue whales were living in that area and feeding in that area? People knew that the blue whales were living around that coastline um, because we've had very sporadic research done. Uh, in 1983, there was the Tulip expedition that was doing sperm whale research, and they recorded the blue whales, and they did some recordings of their sounds, and that's actually the first time that it's, anyone's ever done that. Um, mm. But, you know, nobody really talked about the fact that they were feeding there. And I feel like in the intervening years between that expedition and sort of when I was on the Odyssey at, at this moment when I saw these whales... That was the research vessel we talked about earlier. That's the research vessel yeah. we were talking about, and... Um, subsequently my work, you know, people would document where the whales were being seen, all the different species we have in our waters, but never really, I don't know, never really seemed to stop to ask why. And I guess that's what drives me. It's not knowing that they're there. It's knowing why they're there and what they're doing there and how come. So it's a little bit of a different thing. I'm really surprised, you know, uh, whales have been an object of fascination for a very long time, right? Why do we know so little, or why did we know so little about this population of blue whales around Sri Lanka? Okay, so I think uh, part of the reason we don't know a lot about those whales is because, you know, Sri Lanka went through this 30-year civil war, and I, there's a lot of restrictions about going out to sea and stuff like that. So I think that did sort of make that feel less attractive. Like, I don't think a lot of people felt that there was a niche to go into. Hmm. But also, you know, I come from a country that traditionally believes if you're going to invest in a university education, you're going to become a doctor, lawyer, <laughs> engineer, or a successful business person. Mm. Um, you know, given my background, we didn't have that pressure, which is awesome because that meant, you know, my parents were like, do what you love because if you love it, you'll do it well. And that's sort of, sort of the principle we lived by, and um, which meant I could explore these other fields. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we don't have a lot of marine biologists as a result because it's never been something that's maybe interesting or people are interested or I've had, actually, I'm not going to lie, I've had a lot of people come and say, oh, when I was growing up, I always wanted to be a marine biologist. And then I'm like, oh, why didn't you do it? And then they're like, well, you know, I don't think I'll make enough money to buy my car. And I was like, you've got it all <laughs> wrong. So there you go. Um, but you're saying that the reason so little was known about these whales is that there weren't any Sri Lankan or many Sri Lankan marine biologists, but there weren't marine biologists from other areas coming in and investigating either. Right. That's so, right. So, so you discovered a whole new you know, field of research. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, people knew the whales were there and they knew a few things. They knew that, you know, they had a specific call. It's called the Sri Lankan call. They have a different dialect to blue whales in other ocean basins. Um, for example, the ones that come out to Monterey, you know, they sound totally different. Can you uh, can you give us an example? No. <laughs> <laughs> you can't imitate a whale? <laughs> I'm actually doing that right now, but you can't hear me because it's low frequency. <laughs> oh, it's Yeah, exactly. Okay. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not going to say that I discovered this population. Certainly not. People knew that these whales were around from, you know, time immemorial. There's records uh, by um, ancient uh, uh, traders because Sri Lanka is on the Silk Route. It's on the Spice Route. So there were people who were seeing them. They would document them in mm -hmm. logbooks. Um, we knew that there were cetaceans in general in our waters 
all the way back from Ptolemy's time, the first map of the world actually had Sri Lanka totally wrong size, um, <laughs> wrong I, I, shape. I actually but... saw that map. Uh, you posted it, I think, in your mm-hmm. blog somewhere. And they had Sri Lanka. Ptolemy had yep. Sri Lanka much larger than India. Exactly, right? <laughs> so interesting that, yeah. you know, his perception is obviously a little skewed. But, you know, some of those coordinates were accurate. And when we relate them to where they are today, we know that this point, which he calls Setcom Promotorium, which is Cetacean Promontory, Obviously, it has a reference to cetaceans because they probably saw whales or something. It's the same place where I actually saw my, like, six whales in that small area. So, sort of interesting, that link for me. Mm. Um, but, yeah, the whales have been around. Um, it's just that there hasn't been a lot of investigation. The Tulip Expedition in 1983 was a bunch of scientists from uh, the U.K., that ran that expedition and was funded by WWF Netherlands. But subsequently, uh, you know, a lot of the research stopped because of the war and they never really picked up or people would, like I said, would do stuff, but just a lot more sightings and a lot more safe monitoring kind of stuff, but not really. I mean, it's difficult. I'm not going to lie. There's challenges. There's infrastructure. We just don't have it. Getting a boat with a canopy for me is like the biggest victory on any given day. Um, So you know, everything else is sort of a luxury and you've got to learn to work in a very different way. Just sort of bootstrap it. Absolutely. I mean, my best friends are duct tape, bungee cords, <laughs> you know, that's the stuff that I use. I got a sense of this because I, when I read about you, I pictured you on a nice research vessel, but then I went and looked at a um, a video that was made about you and was posted on the New York Times website and I saw at least one of the boats you use. Mm-hmm. It was, I don't want to hurt your feelings, no, but it was a little bit okay. shabby. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's actually the fancier boat we use. Oh, really? But what's interesting is that to do that particular kind of work, um, I had actually sourced this one boat that was actually like, it was like the dream boat for me, which is a step up from what you saw. <sighs> and I was super excited. And I'd just been out of the country. I came back and the next day I had a team of scientists from Duke University in North Carolina coming out with some equipment that I wanted to use. So I was psyched. This was like a piece of research I've been wanting to do for years. And I was finally getting the opportunity. I'd got the money to do this and had this boat and had this beautiful stainless steel mount made for this piece of equipment. It was a sonar? It was an echo sounder. Echo sounder. Yeah. So that was to, we were using that to try to detect where the prey was in the water column. And it was just, you know, I knew it was way too good to be true. I went for a test run the morning that those guys were turning up and the boat started to sink. Oh, no. So <laughs> it was an interesting greeting when they walked into my house. And I'm like, I'm so excited you're here, but we don't have a boat. So that's a minor problem. And then I reminded them that I've been wanting to do this work for years. So we would get it done. And then I had to call around and then finally found the boat that you saw on that video clip. Um, with greatest difficulty, managed to like book it. And, you know, then we realized the mount wasn't the same size. So that's where duct tape and bungee cords mm. come in mm. handy. Well, by the way, I want to, I think, correct something I said earlier. I said ultrasonic when I was talking about the fact that uh, some blue whale sounds aren't audible to us. I should have said infrasonic, shouldn't mm-hmm. I? Low, ultra it's, low. Yeah, it's very low frequency sounds. Huh, huh. Um, but you're describing really just, you know, becoming completely absorbed in this subject and just taking it up on your own. With mm-hmm. very little money, mm-hmm. with essentially no equipment, and working from boats, mm-hmm. what can one learn about blue whales, you know, from a rented boat uh, with virtually no equipment? You know, I think that's a really great question, <laughs> and I'm so happy you asked, because I actually think we can learn almost everything. And I think the problem is that in this day and age, a lot of the big research operations have just got so comfortable with having the equipment at their uh, disposal, having the funds to purchase whatever they want. And I have had to deal with criticism about that. They're like, I've had scientists from other countries say, oh, why do you use such basic equipment? And I'm like, meh, you have no idea what it's like. And I always remind them a canopy is a big deal. And that's a priority when you're spending eight hours in the burning hot tropical sun. Um, But it, and it seems like a simple request but it's really not where I come from. And then I also like to remind people that, you know, maybe 20 years ago, scientists in the U.S. were doing research with basic infrastructure, and a lot of that is what forms the basis of what we know today. You know, you have to learn to be innovative uh, to actually succeed. And I think 
certainly in our parts of the world, there's a lot of innovation as a result. People are always trying to come up with alternatives, cheaper ways of doing things. And I think we live in this age where there's so much of that innovation and, you know, creation and open source sort of stuff that I think there's so much potential for us to actually advance faster than maybe, you know, people were doing 20 years ago. Well, Asha, you know, tell me what you can learn. I mean, what percentage of their total lives uh, do blue whales spend at the surface where they can even be seen by mm. someone on a boat? Okay, so that's a good question. When I said you can learn a lot, I meant a lot of the little we already know today, right? <laughs> it's, we have to put it in perspective. <laughs> Wouldn't um, you like a submarine? <laughs> I know. Gosh, there's a lot of things I would love. Um, but certainly they, I would say they, you'll see them on the surface maybe for 25% of mm. their lives. Oh, that's quite a bit. So, it's a reasonable amount, but it's broken up into parts, right? So they'll right. be up at the surface for two seconds, and then they'll go down for you know a few seconds up like that for a few cycles, and then they'll dive for twenty minutes and then come back back up. And then you know where they come back up. Sometimes we don't know. Um, mm -hmm. So I mean that's partly why our knowledge in general about blue whales or whales is so limited because. We're so dependent on using platforms that we can see from, but then as soon as they go into the open ocean, we're restricted by our boundaries, you know, our invisible boundaries and equipment and just the ability to stay out there. And so there are definitely problems. And I think in some ways it's kind of magical that they're such elusive creatures, the largest animals to ever live on the planet. We know next to nothing about them. And, you know, that need to learn to understand for the sake of the ecosystem um, is such a is such a pleasurable thing, I think. Hmm. You have called um, these particular blue whales, the ones who live around Sri Lanka, unorthodox whales. Mm -hmm. You said already that they have a distinctive dialect, mm -hmm. that they don't eat in the uh, polar waters where they're expected to. They don't migrate the way blue whales do elsewhere. As far as we know, based on like bottom set acoustic devices, they're not going to the polar waters. I mean, I wouldn't go. If I was living in the tropics, I would just hang around. But aren't there, isn't there more good eating in colder water? Yeah, but you know, I actually think that um, it's actually, it's a mis misconception that places like the Northern Indian Ocean are not very productive. Ah. We do assume that, yeah, polar waters, the food is definitely, it's more packed with food and more productive. And, and the reason for that is more um, oxygen? Just cooler waters tend to be have more uh, nutrients. They're mm -hmm. more nutrient-rich. And as a result, that you know is perfect for the phytoplankton and then the zooplankton to grow. Okay. Um, certainly, you know, like the Northern Indian Ocean, we're discovering is m more uh, productive than we assume. And it's because of the way the currents move and how they interact with the bottom topography, um, the continental shelves. And that's what was, you know, was interesting during my PhD. That's the kind of stuff I was interested in is like, why is it so productive? Why are these, why are these large animals hanging around here all year round? There's a reason. What's driving it? And I was interested in how these currents and stuff influence that area. So that's why I chose to go down that strange path. So you're, you're involved... Um you know, you're really dedicated to learning about these particular blue whales and preserving them or saving mm -hmm. them. Are they endangered? Blue whales in general are definitely endangered. But the problem is that that's just a blanket sort of description of their threat status. We have to understand that, as with all organisms, there are subpopulations that have different needs. So, like I said, you know, the ones in around the northern Indian Ocean don't migrate to polar waters. They obviously need to be able to survive in these warmer waters all year round. Well, the needs of the whales in another part of the world would be different. So we have to consider those needs, which is why you know research should go on in these different parts of the ocean. We don't actually even know how many whales there are in the northern Indian Ocean. And that's something that I'm trying to figure out right now because we don't have the information, but we're trying to build on it. How would you even count them? There's a few ways. Um you know, you can do aerial surveys, um, small light aircrafts um, that can run over and do actual counts, but you have to do repeat counts. That's quite an expensive method. So what we do actually is um, photo identification, which is a really cool, cheap tool um, where you, ha you all you need is a camera, essentially, and you take pictures of certain parts of the whale's bodies. So th for us, we can use the tail flukes or the dorsal flanks, either side of the animal, and we look at the patterning. And the patterning on their bodies is very much like our thumbprint. It's very unique. 
from one individual to the other. So we can identify them by the markings, the scarrings, anything that's permanent. And we use those to sort of identify individuals and that can tell us if the same individuals come back or and are we recounting it or is it a new individual? And so it's a very slow process, yeah. I'm not going to lie. And so which is why, I, you know, I try to get there's a whale watching industry that started. I'm trying to get tourists to contribute pictures, trying to get more people on board because I don't necessarily get to spend as much time as I'd love, you know, doing that. What's your current count then of unique whale sightings? So far. So today I'm just been sorting out my database and we're still sorting a lot of stuff out and we have maybe 50 in it right now, but I think the numbers will increase. Um, like I said, so you know, this is the first time anyone's doing building a dedicated database on these individuals. So hopefully, you know, we'll have some sense of numbers. Like the only number we have right now is that in the 60s, illegal Soviet whaling took out 1,200 whales in about six years. Oh, wow. So, you know, what damage that did to the population, we don't even understand. Right. And that's all the kinds of stuff I'm very interested in. I think it was that New York Times video I mentioned earlier that said that there is an estimated um, 15,000 blue whales worldwide. Absolutely, yeah. And, of course, these these uh, Indian Ocean blue whales that you study uh, would be uh, probably a small fraction of that. Yeah. But how can they even guess at the total number of blue whales? They've done aerial surveys of, um, you know, of other parts here there's a lot of work off california where they've done photo identification and it's been done for 30 years so they have a decent catalog with you know something like i may be slightly off but maybe about 2000 individuals oh, wow. um off in the gulf of st lawrence in canada they have a catalog so there's different parts where mm. they do have catalogs so there's it's a rough estimation but certainly it's a fraction of what we had you know before pre-whaling so mm. yeah and there are people who then go through these photo databases and say Here's a new picture. Which of these whales mm -hmm. is it or is it a yet unknown whale or a new whale? Exactly. That sounds like unbelievable amounts of work. It's unbelievable amounts of work <laughs> for sure. And it's not automated. With some other species, they, you know, for whatever reason, it, the markings are so stand outish that you can automate it, mm -hmm. uh, but we can't. So you have to like, you know, have a trained eye and an eye for detail. But I have to say that it's actually there's something really fun about it. You know, you kind of... Oh, so you do this yourself? Yeah. I mean, I've been doing it myself. I do get, you know, I have interns to help me because I also think it's a really great experience for young scientists to learn these techniques. I think attention to detail is something that's really valuable for any scientist. And this is a great way to hone those skills. Uh, but it's really interesting because I think... You know, when you see these whales in the water, sometimes there's not enough time to appreciate how individual that in animal is. And this gives you time to like look at it and sometimes the markings are not super distinct, but you're like, wow, like it's got this little blob here that looks like an alien. Like, you know, it's sort of very, very interesting and you, you it tells a story, uh, you know, especially when you see scarring patterns and, you know, some of them have lesions and those are kinds of things that we can use to sort of understand what's really going on in their world. And so I, I find it really interesting. Do you dream, though, of tagging each one with an electronic device that would allow you to track them, allow you to collect information on what they're doing and where they are at all times? I would love to be able to tag some of them, for sure. Um, you know, there's different kinds of tags. You have the satellite tags, which can track um, where the animal is roaming. And I think that would be really interesting to find out if there's any particular places they like to spend a little extra time and what's going on there in terms of the oceanography. Mm -hmm. So again, that's where my interest in oceanography is coming in. It's like, you know, is there like a, a good feeding ground here and what's driving that? But then you also have these great suction cup tags, which are, you know, less considered less invasive. Um, and they you just stick on and they give you a really good picture of the underwater behavior of the whale over, say, a 6 to 12 hour period and then it pops right off. And that's really interesting. I've done some work with those in uh, with humpback whales in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. I was helping a project out because I was super interested in these kinds of tags. How do and you attach these? You you basically have a really long carbon fiber pole and you kind of drive up to them and you just um, it's the tag itself is on the end of the pole and you stick it on and it you know the whales like don't even flinch <laughs> don't. and it's so interesting because they're so large and it just stays on their body and you know they dive around and then there's a timer release that say in six hours it pops off and 
You have Floats. to pick up the tag, yeah. Hmm. So we have to sort of follow the animal from a distance, but we pick up the tag and then you download the data and it's so incredible to be able to see how the, you know, how deep the animal's going, what temperature it is down there. Are they rolling on their side to feed on the bottom or, you know, are they lunging? I don't know. There's so many, there's such a cool little story that comes out of that. And I think that technology is very, very interesting and has a lot of really great applications. Asha, you were selected as a TED Fellow. Mm -hmm. That's the TED, famous TED conference. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, what's a TED Fellow? So a TED Fellow, I guess they describe TED Fellows as um, world changing, mo changers, movers and shakers. So basically someone who has drive and enthusiasm to make a change, positive change in the world and is actually trying to do it. And this was a couple of years ago that you got picked? Correct, 2012. How did you get uh, selected for this honor? So I actually applied, and a lot of fellows do apply. Um, but, of course, I applied, and I was like, yeah, they're never going to pick me, <laughs> you know. I mean, having seen the list of fellows, I was sort of like, I'm just going to apply because, you know, th this is – very much a part of my personality, taking those risks and just putting myself there and like, you know, and then what, writing, what's uh, the worst thing that could happen? Writing a letter every day. Yeah, exactly. This is, <laughs> gosh, talk about persistence, right? What am I telling you about myself? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, um, I applied and uh, my boyfriend at the time was like, oh, you know, you never know, you might not get it. And like, it seems like a lot of time to invest in this application. I was like, well, you know, and I had three days to apply because I only discovered it, this application just before the closing date. So I was like, whatever, I'm going to do this. And I filled it up. And obviously it went well for me because I ended up being picked. And um, certainly it was for the work I do with the Blue Whales that they were really interested. And I think it was kind of nice to be appreciated once again for being not just a marine biologist, but someone who had tried to break a bunch of boundaries and come up upon a lot of challenges to do what they loved. And I thought that was kind of nice to be appreciated for that. And it's a really special group of people. I mean, I feel super privileged to be part of that group. I still wonder how I got in sometimes. It's a group of young, really incredibly inspiring people. And I can interact with them. We have collaborations together. And I learned so much. And because we're not all marine scientists, I talk to marine scientists all the time and it gets tedious after a point just because you know like sometimes we can be so focused and it's kind of nice to be surrounded by people who are doing exciting things in their own respective fields and it makes you look at the world through different eyes and realize that you know your work can influence so many other things or someone else can help you to make your work better and they don't have to be in the same field it can be something else they can make build something for you so there's all these kind of cross collaborations and certainly cross pollination that goes on with to me some of my favorite people in the world they include not only scientists but writers and thinkers of various kinds and artists and for example uh, one of them another ted senior fellow mm -hmm. along with you is the uh, singer Miklit Hadero, mm -hmm. uh, who's a friend of yours and uh -huh. who was on this show mm -hmm. just last week. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we featured her music. So that's the kind of people you got to meet and work with as a TED fellow. Um, in, in selecting you, I bet they were impressed by your initiative going off and studying these whales without much money, without a fancy research vessel <laughs> or equipment. Yeah, you think that was part of it? Yeah, I definitely think that's part of it. But I also think that... Um, you know, that that's a specific whale side of things and like my drive and to go and do that and change the world from my little corner of the universe. But also it's because I do a lot of outreach and I want to bring the ocean to more people in the world because I feel, I actually really strongly believe the more we know, the more responsible we feel and the more we're likely to care. And I want to put people in a position where it's they, they have no escape from that obligation to care. And uh, so I, I do work, you know, with education. I do media stuff. I write articles. And all of that is just totally because I want to bring the ocean. It's such a fascinating place. And the world sees it. Like the vast majority will see it as a big blue tank of water. But, you know, you peel off the top and inside there's this magic that happens. And I think it's something we need to share. And I think if more people knew about it, definitely the ocean would not be in such a bad state. Well, one of the things you did with Ted... Um uh, is a video mm -hmm. for uh, TED Ed. I guess that's their educational arm. That's right. Um, and I'm going to play a little <laughs> bit about this. It's it's about why blue whales are so big, mm -hmm. and um, they have you in the form of a Muppet. 
And they have another puppet as a whale, and they have other things going on in this very cute video. We'll post a link on our website. But uh, I'm just going to let listeners hear a little bit of it, you talking about why whales are so big. This part is about their eating habits. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crazy that the blue whale's heart is as big as a small car. A child could crawl through its arteries. Its tongue weighs as much as an elephant. But its esophagus is so small the whale could choke on a loaf of bread. These whales are really not designed to feed on anything larger than krill. It's estimated that blue whales eat four tons of krill per day. Because of the incredible design, each dive provides the blue whale with 90 times as much energy as is used. Every mouthful of krill provides almost 480,000 calories, the same amount you get from eating 1,900 hamburgers. So that was you narrating, Asha, and also you cast as a Muppet uh, Mm -hmm. who's diving with this whale. Yeah. Um, So you were talking about the fact that whales eat krill, these very small marine invertebrates, Mm -hmm. little shrimpy things. Yeah, Yeah. tiny (laughs) shrimp-like creatures. (laughs) And with each gulp, they actually um, engulf Mm -hmm. more than their entire body weight Mm -hmm. in water and krill. Yep. Wow. Isn't that exciting? It's it is. Pretty amazing. And then they uh, they um, spit out the water through this uh, filter called the baleen, mm-hmm. and the, the krill are retained, and they eat the krill. Yeah. Um, have you ever eaten krill? You know what? Actually, at home in Sri Lanka, people eat krill. We oh, do. they do? What's it taste we, like? It's... Uh, Curried krill? It's... Uh, well, it's, you know, <laughs> we dry it, um, and then it's uh, either people grind it up in a paste with uh, chili and, and onions, or it's stir-fried with um, some onions and chilies and stuff. Mm. And it's super tasty. Sri Lankan food is really oh, yummy. Oh, I've had it. It's yeah. fantastic. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, so this so, is like yeah. a shrimp paste sort of Yeah, flavor. it's kind of a shrimp paste. So oh, that's you know the basis of a good. lot of these dry shrimp pastes that you'll get in a lot of countries. Yeah. Well, explain to us, um, the video goes on to, to describe this phenomenon, but the fact that the blue whales, the largest creature that ever existed on Earth, I think the video says that they weigh about as much as 40 elephants. 40 African elephants. 40 African yeah. elephants, the big elephants. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason is because they eat such small things in mm-hmm. this manner. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Describe I mean, that. you know, uh, it's kind of incredible because you think it's one of the smallest animals out in the world, you know, creatures in the ocean, and then you've got the largest animal that's ever lived, and how does that work? Right, um, but it's just because blue whales have, over evolutionary time, realized that the most efficient way to feed their like their bodily needs is to really source out really big patches of krill, which is why you know they'll go to polar waters because there's big patches of krill seasonally there which they can feed on with minimal energy expenditure, and that's like really the catch, right? It's like you don't want to expend too much energy while you're doing it, but you want to expend enough. If it means you're going to get to a patch that's going to give you, say, double the amount of energy. And so there's this playoff that they work with. So that's why they do these long migrations. They go specifically to areas where they can find these big patches of food that's going to give them their calorific demand and give them extra to, you know, hold them um, through like till their next meal. So big enough to capture huge amounts of krill in a single gulp. Yes. Big enough to save those calories uh, for the next big, you know, buffet. Yeah. And big because it doesn't cost that much to get big in these circumstances. Right. Especially when you're floating and you don't have to carry that weight as, right. as a land animal would. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's why, you know, the ocean's like this great place for animals to be that big. is because one of the main things is that you're buoyant. So, you know, that gravity is not having its effects on your body and gives you the space to grow as big as a blue whale. By the way, the uh, Muppet version of Asha DeVos is um, diving with the whales. Do you Mm -hmm. do that too? Um, Actually, all my work I do off boats because uh, partly because blue whales are sort of very interesting creatures. Having worked with humpbacks as well, they have such distinct personality differences. Um, And, you know, humpbacks... Everyone thinks of humpbacks and the first thing you think of is like humpbacks sidling along your boat and sort of <laughs> flapping flapping around and looking at you and stuff. Blue whales will not do that. Blue whales clearly have 
bigger missions in mind. And I always say they're like the businessmen of the ocean. They're very focused. They're going, you know, I think they're actually going from one place to the other feeding because they have to keep their bodies going. They're so big. And what happens with blue whales is if you try to approach them and get in the water, they actually tend to skitter off more. Mm. And so I tend to spend more time on the boats and just sit back and kind of observe them from a distance because I'm trying to understand what they're doing in their natural world and with minimal distractions and disturbances. So, yeah. They're not the most touchy-feely whales. Mm-mm, no. Well, what do you think, though? A lot of people, um, let's face it, a lot of people are interested in whales in a more than scientific or biological way. Mm-hmm. They see them as mystical. They want to get close to them. You know, I'm sure people fantasize about swimming right up to them and touching them, riding on their backs. Mm-hmm. This seems to be a very common human feeling about whales. Mm -hmm. Do you have that feeling or do you think that's silly? What do you think of that? Um, I think for me, I have a huge respect for these animals. So I feel, you know, one of the things is I always say, I don't really like strangers coming and touching me. So (laughs) I don't know about that interaction. And I mean, it it is all inspiring. I'm not going to lie. For me, every single time I see a whale, I'm just, you know, like, oh my goodness, did you see that? And like, I'm like excited and screaming. But it's more because I'm just like, whoa, what is going on? These animals are humongous. You so know, you aren't all sentimental. I'm no, and 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 that excitement comes from a, I'd like to think a deeper place, which is based on this whole like questioning that I, you know, all these questions that run through my head. I can understand people wanting to do that, though. I can understand it, but I just don't think it's advisable. You know, mm. they're large animals, and they don't know like their body strength against a human being and you know one flick of the tail and you can be unconscious it it doesn't make any sense and i think if you really want to appreciate any animal it's a wild being and i think it's about appreciating it in its natural environment and just sitting back and just watching and thinking i'm the luckiest person alive because i can see this happening and i don't need to be sitting on it I've read that among the things you're concerned about in protecting uh, this fragile population of whales around Sri Lanka is um, ship strikes, Mm -hmm. the jargon term for a ship hitting a whale, which happens in these crowded shipping lanes, killing the whales. And even the uh, growing and unregulated uh, whale-watching industry may Mm -hmm. be bumping into whales as they try to get too close. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I definitely think uh, with the whale-watching, I think, you know, in Sri Lanka, it's a a new industry. It's been around maybe six or seven years. Um, It's not regulated, um, and they're just trying to start regulating it. There's more boats than necessary in the waters, around, you know, like a couple of whales, you'll have a bunch of boats and some of them are very careless. Um, it is very disconcerting to watch. A lot of the time I don't actually work around those the whales that are being harassed by whale watching boats because again, that that's not how I want to observe them. Um, but certainly I think the biggest threat to these animals is uh, the threat of ship strike. And off the southern coast of Sri Lanka runs one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. Uh, undoubtedly, and it you know it basically connects sort of uh, the Straits of Malacca, Singapore, uh, to Europe, and they go very close to shore. The shipping lanes are maybe ten kilometers offshore, exactly where I work. So just for a little perspective, I um, I sit on a boat which is six meters or about twenty one feet, and um, a, a whale is you know twenty five meters, and these ships are about two hundred meters. You know, and I spend a lot of time trying to dodge them, basically. And they move fast, you know, because they're so huge. And it's pretty scary for me. And um, I think these whales just have, in some way, they've like kind of learned to live with this increasing ship traffic. But obviously, sometimes there's times they get it wrong. And I think it's very unfortunate. And we see more um, whales that get struck. And I think it's a problem that is completely tractable. It's something that we can solve. Uh, And that's actually what I'm working on right now here. How would you solve it? So actually off California, Mm. you had the same problem. Um, There was a a one year where there was about eight whales that got hit. And they had very definite signs of a ship strike. Um, And they've estimated for every whale that we actually find dead that is definitely hit by a a ship, there's about 10 others that have either floated offshore or sunk. Um, So off here, you know, they shifted the shipping lanes uh, a little bit to accommodate these areas where there was overlap between productive areas where whales are likely to go and hang around or feed 
and um, the shipping lanes. And, you know, they've also uh, reduced speeds. They find that by reducing the speeds uh, over a certain area, uh, there's more chance for the whales to respond and to move and stuff like that. And so, you know, at the moment, I am based here at UC Santa Cruz working with people who worked off with the same problem of California. And the reason I came out here is pretty much because I don't want to reinvent the wheel. Uh, There's not so much time in our lives to sort of make, you know, achieve the goals that we want to achieve. And I think it makes so much sense for me to sit with these incredible people who have so much knowledge, so much skill, and sort of try to solve these problems of Sri Lanka. So we're looking at what are the options of there. And once we have the science down, which I think is the most important part uh, in the next year or so, then that's when I'll start taking to the next level. I'll take it to policymakers in Sri Lanka, but then also international organizations that are involved in uh, shipping the shipping industry and all the while, you know, there's I do all this outreach and stuff because I want people to know more about it because I think the more, again, the more voices we have, the more likely we're going to make these changes. And I think a lot of people mistakenly believe that uh, saving the whales is just because they're so beautiful and charismatic. But, you know, there's more to them. Um, they're an important part of an ecosystem. You take them out, you disrupt them, you reduce their numbers. It has cascading effects right through um, the system and they're very important in nutrient cycling. Uh, for example, you know, every time a whale dies, um, they have all this carbon in their bodies that they take to the depths and, you know, they're taking carbon, excess carbon from the atmosphere into the depths of the ocean, which is considered a carbon sink. And that's helping us in terms of, you know, greenhouse gases and stuff. And also feeding a whole colony of animals down there that, you know, where food is sparse. And also, again, you know, every time they poop or defecate, that's bringing nutrients from the depths, iron, high in iron contents, to the surface, to the photosynthetic zone, which means we have more plankton that actually, um, it, you know, is the res- is the reason we have the oxygen we have today. About 50% or 70% actually of our oxygen that we are breathing today comes from plants in the ocean. And, you know, thanks to the whale poop, we might have more. So having whales around is not a bad thing. Well, you convinced me, but is there anything bad about whales? No. <laughs> no. You know, you know, they've been around for <laughs> so long that they fit right into the ecosystem and they're a component of it. Krill might differ with you on that one, but... Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> true. I guess I've never tried being a krill, so... <laughs> um, but what could shipping um, companies do differently that would uh, spare the whales, you know, that would reduce the number of whale deaths from ship collisions? Like I said, off California, the decision to move the shipping lanes has been obviously taken So it's really a just a matter arm. of moving so, the lanes. So not, th- that's an option. So not we're warning at, the whales away from It's It's a little more difficult with blue whales. You know, off off the East Coast, they've done, with right whales, they have um, hydrophones in the water, which is underwater microphones, mm-hmm. that uh, can pick up the sounds of the whales. And then the ship's captains have, this, have these apps on the iPad that tell them where the whales are. And so that's kind of interesting because then they can change their course and I see. veer away. But they can't just honk. You know? <laughs> no, you know, because the frequencies, we always assume, I guess, that animals hear at the same frequency that they're vocalizing. And so if animals are vocalizing at very low frequencies, um, one of the things is, you know, that sound of the honk is not great. It's not going to be something in their hearing range, perhaps. Oh. And it's also out mm. of the water. So that's not really helpful. Okay. It's tricky. It's tricky. <laughs> Oh, you know, I I think I exaggerated the size of blue whales when I said they're almost as long as a soccer pitch. You just said they're, mm, at least the ones you're studying near Sri Lanka, about 25 meters mm-hmm. full grown. Mm-hmm. So not quite a soccer quite. pitch, yeah, but pretty big. Basketball court. Basketball court, mm. yeah. And That's even right. and these are smaller blue whales, right? Yeah, so they're um, so unfortunate. They're called pygmy blue whales, but they're still 25 meters long, and the largest blue whales are 30 meters long. So, oh, not much kind of a of difference. No. So you came to Santa Cruz, California, mm-hmm. on the Monterey Bay for your postdoc, actually, right? That's right. To work with people who were also studying this problem of uh, whale strikes by ships. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got here at a very interesting time. You you got here mm-hmm. just in time to see a pretty remarkable phenomenon. Oh, yeah. Want to describe it? Yeah. The feeding frenzy? Yeah. Oh, goodness. I have to say, like, for me, that was the warmest welcome I've ever had to a new country. (laughs) (laughs) It was 
it was super mind blowing. I remember one day I was sitting in my office and my office actually overlooks the ocean. And I would see these pelicans going by and every day, every time, you know, they'd go by in huge flocks constantly. And I would keep turning to my colleagues and be like, pelicans. And they were like, yeah. And then we'd all run to the window and we'd stare and I'd be like, I don't get it. And then one day we went right around the outside and there was a cliff and there's a little beach and it was just covered with birds and I was completely blown away looked down into the water sea lions seals cormorants pelicans just massive big black clouds of anchovy just shifting in the water it was so magical for me you know to be in this place which there's so much marine action I mean it's a I think every marine biologist dream to spend a little bit of time along this coastline and you know I just felt like wow like this is crazy i don't understand why is this happening and and for me i was like okay this is very incredible but perhaps people have seen this before and so for the next like two weeks which are like about my first two weeks here in uh, santa cruz i actually spent time walking up and down west cliff which is the walkway along the ocean observing watching talking to people because i was intrigued about what they thought and you know there's residents who've been living here for forever and they were like we've never seen this before and this was a this is in the fall of 2013 that's correct huge schools of anchovies came mm-hmm. into the bay mm-hmm. and brought with them all these anchovy eating mm-hmm. <laughs> animals exactly including whales yeah exactly lots of whales yeah exactly and it was incredible because what happened was uh the humpbacks should have been down south by that time but they were hanging around getting fat and it's sort of interesting to think about you know, they're going down south to calve or to breed. And you're wondering if maybe the ones who were pregnant continued on the migration, regardless of the fact that there was food, but they had to be in these warm waters to give birth. But then you had these others that were straggling because there was just like this enormous opportunity to just keep stuffing themselves and just gorging. And, you know, that's what they did. And I went out on a boat um, one day just, you know, because I was like, I need to go out and see what's going on out beyond the beach which to me was pretty phenomenal because there were anchovies actually flipping onto the beach <laughs> because there were that many and yeah. all these animals rushing up and trying to grab them and the anchovies were like I want to get out of here and they'd flip on the beach and then like uh, you know dogs would come and grab them and it was just sort of very interesting so dynamic and so much happening in that space but when I went out you know on this boat to uh, a whale watch boat to just check out what was going on there it was crazy because um you know, for me, what was really interesting was the thousands of sea lions, just rafts of them going by. It was never ending. They're going by. And then they were cooperatively hunting with the humpbacks. So you'd suddenly have these humpbacks like popping out through in between the sea lions. And it was crazy. When you, you say know? cooperatively, they were herding the anchovies. Yeah. So they were obviously, you know, humpbacks have these different feeding techniques. And I, I don't know exactly what they're using out here. But certainly they would ha- herd them by swimming around these schools of anchovy. And then, you know, I guess when the stray ones start moving out of this big ball of anchovy that's formed, then the sea lions can grab those. And so it's sort of this really, I mean, to me, that's really interesting because it's like they're working together and, and that, you know, this is what, how the planet really should function, right? Where we're all working <laughs> together, not against each other. I guess maybe the anchovies won't agree <laughs> at this point, but it's, it was, it was just completely magical, like completely and utterly mind blowing. And there was a, a whole lot of whales just like swimming through, cruising through under our boat, uh, around. And I, I mean, just seeing these black clouds of anchovy moving was a surreal, pretty surreal experience. Yeah. Um, I got to witness a little bit from the shore as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, humpbacks jumping out of the water. Why do they do that? So that's interesting. You know, uh, breaching, again, like something we don't really know a whole lot about time some theories say that they're trying to get rid of parasites on their body there are theories about them using that as a form of communication so when they slap their groups kind of come together it's not to look around is it not no not really because they would spy hop so spy hop is when they pull their heads out of the water and that's usually for them to look around okay but uh, i guess you know that's that's what the beauty of science is is we we know so much, but yet we know nothing. And it's always evolving because we're always learning something new that throws us off and goes, eh, this is not how it's supposed to be. And, you know, you have to go down another path. So it's pretty cool. Um, whales are marine mammals. Mm-hmm. And all marine mammals were once land dwellers. Mm-hmm. What is the ancestor of a whale? 
surprisingly the hippopotamus. Something like a hippopotamus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Isn't it some, wasn't Pachycetus. Pachycetus. Yeah, that's right. It's called Pachycetus. And and it, it was what? It's hard to describe, and I would suggest you um, Google it up. Okay. Uh, just because it's such an interesting-looking animal. Um, but it was discovered in Pakistan, hence Pachycetus. So, yeah, that's the ancestor, and that's sort of where the animals went from being on land into the water. And uh, so the area you come from is not that far from the very original mm-hmm. spot yep. where the ancestral land animal went back to the water. Mm-hmm. Are there theories as to why they would go back to the water? I mean, they obviously all land animals originated in the ocean, mm-hmm. and a small subset of them went back to the sea and became marine mammals. Mm-hmm. Why? Um, I think uh, part of it is that whole like growth thing. You know, it's like the f- freedom to grow, um, also the availability of food. Um, so exploiting a different niche. Um, there's so many different theories, and I think it's it's sort of another interesting pathway um, to, and an, an interesting area to think about because we know again so little. Like you know, this discovery of Pachycetus was a, a big moment because for a long time we were like, wait a second, what's that missing link between land and the ocean? Yeah. And now we kind of have it, and now we're like, but why? Mm. So, yeah. I imagine whale skeletons show some evidence of having once had legs. They definitely have um, vestigial bones that give us a sense that they were once land animals, but they're very shrunken and serve no purpose. Mm. So, You study more than whales, true? Mm, yeah. What else is on your mind? Ah, lots of things <laughs> on my mind. I actually, so for me, uh, you know, I got sucked into the blue whale story because, like I said, it was that experience and just wanting to know more and being curious about this population. Um, but I certainly am not restricted to whales, and I'm so- certainly not restricted to blue whales. The cool thing about blue whales is uh, it's a great way to open up a conversation with people and then start talking to them about the ocean in general. So I've started to learn to use whales as a talking point that then allows me to suck people into the conversation and really inform them a little bit more and create awareness. Um, I'm really interested in general in um, large megafauna, so you know, mantas, whale sharks, sharks, because for whatever reason, human beings have been very unkind to them and we still are very unkind to them. uh, And we take them out of the water like nobody's business and that's not how it should work. And so I'm really interested in going down a few different other pathways and I'm sort of developing those as I go along. I'm interested in the ocean in general, in bringing awareness to the ocean uh, certainly looking at innovative ways to uh, get more people to think about the ocean. You're saying that you're you're interested in raising awareness, bringing attention to the oceans, and you've become something of a celebrity, I think, thanks in part to your selection by Ted. You know, that raised your profile. And the stories in National Geographic, the New mm-hmm. York Times, and all of that, right? So mm-hmm. you're you're becoming the face of marine biology for, I don't know, maybe for Sri Lanka? I'm going to step back. I have had a lot of publicity because of TED, but um, before that, I think some of the the original documentaries that were done were pre-TED years. And it was really thanks to some people who were interested in the blue whales. And so they came out to film the blue whales and they wanted someone who had the story for them. And, you know, it just happened to be That's where it got started. So that's where it started. And actually, I got my TED fellowship partly because they'd, they'd seen these I documentaries. See. So it was kind well, of a That's how it works. Thing. It's kind of a snowball. Yeah. Effect. You kind of, I think you kind of have to have done something with your life to prove that you were on a path, on the path of reaching your goals before they select you. So, right. um, but you know, I, I don't know. Celebrity seems like a pretty big word for me, but um, I'm just happy if um, I can, you know, create excitement amongst people uh, to care more. And really, you know, I'm obviously passionate about marine biology, but for me, it's also inspiring people to be passionate about whatever they choose to be passionate about. Just do something, not because of societal pressure or peer pressure. Do it because you know that that makes you feel good and you can make a change in the world for the positive. For me, you know, I never set out to change the world necessarily, but, you know, Part of me was like, am I doing something positive? I want to know. And, you know, when my first documentary went out um, in 2010, it's a short 10-minute clip about the work I do. 
it went viral. Like I was not expecting that. And then I started getting all these emails from around the world. Like even two days ago, I got an email about that same clip from Colombia. But for me, the most special were like when Sri Lankans wrote to say, we didn't even know we had whales in our waters before this. Or like young people from the region who wrote, you know, saying, you really inspire us. Well, I'm I'm going to stop you right there because I wanted to read a couple of um, comments on your blog. Here's just a couple of examples. Hello, Asha Devas. I'm Ama from Sri Lanka. I'm 15 years old, and I appreciate your work on unorthodox whales. When I grow up, I want to help save and conserve the environment, especially in Sri Lanka, as it is much neglected here. And she goes on about that. And she ends by saying, "Um, your existence in this world gives me hope and inspiration to follow my dreams further. And thank you for saying never to lose my dreams. It made me believe in me. Um, Here's another one. Hi, Asha Devas. My name is, and you tell me if I'm mispronouncing it, Supashala. 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 (laughs) And I'm from Sri Lanka, and I'm 15 years old. And when I grow up, I want to be like you. I want to inspire people to do a great part in helping conserve nature, especially in our country. And uh, she goes on as well. So, Asha, it seems to be working. (laughs) So far, so good. And I'm just hoping the snowball effect means there's more people who get excited about it. So, you know, so far, I've been lucky as well, I think. And... I've had the opportunities, and I want to take back the opportunities to the parts of the world, not only Sri Lanka, to the parts of the world that don't have those. Um, and again, I just want people to know that you can do pretty much anything you want to do. You just have to be a little bit pig-headed and persistent. Well, thank you, Asha. Thank you so much. Asha Devas. She's currently doing postdoctoral studies at UC Santa Cruz before she returns to Sri Lanka to continue her research and educational work there. You can learn more about her at her website, ashadevas.com. And Asha Devas is spelled A-S-H-A-D-E-V-O-S. Also, uh, Asha will be giving a public talk on the unorthodox whales of Sri Lanka on uh, Friday, May 16th at Stanford University's Hopkins Marine Station in Pacific Grove. You can learn more at marine.stanford.edu. This has been the 7th Avenue Project, online at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us this week, and I hope you'll do the same next week. Until then, so long. <laughs>